so much of the way the Buddha taught the path is uh, um, going from a personal notion that I'm kind of screwed, I'm a human being, and uh, life is tough, and I don't really understand it, to beginning to uh, open to a more natural view, the whole spiritual life being a natural process instead of this uh, terrible, lonely, personal journey that each of us has to do, which it feels like a lot of the time. But hopefully, even as that neurotic individual alone against all odds, seeking happiness. <coughs> Hopefully we begin to realize, like, yeah, laugh like that. <laughs> like, oh, it's not the way I thought it was. <laughs> and that was like, like that, maybe even some of you felt a moment ago, like, uh, oh yeah, that's a big trip that we can create. I've caught myself a couple times just having ballooned into this very noble and dramatic story of the spiritual path that I'm on. I was very idealistic. <laughs> I still have that tendency. But, you know, really idealistic as a kid and then <coughs> as a young adult. I mean, it got me interested in spiritual life, but uh, there are problems associated with idealism. So uh, I've been talking <coughs> this retreat in terms of the engine of our path being both a combination of aspiration and effort and then necessarily the refining, the refinement of both aspiration and effort. So we just begin wherever we are with efforting and wherever we are with our aspiration, like what we think is important, what we think we really want. And then we just, you know, apply our will. That's the effort to get what we think we really want. And this is what everybody's doing. It's not just people who consider themselves on a spiritual path. Everybody is taking their, you know, their capacity to apply themselves, to make a willful effort to get what they truly think they want, even if, from our point of view, it seems silly what they want. And so, uh, the question is, how do we refine this engine of efforting, and I guess you could say goal or aspiration? so that it delivers something of value. And, you know, the most important thing we add to this is this value of sensitivity, right? Where whatever aspiration we have and whatever kind of effort we're making, if we're willing to be sensitive, and in particular sensitive to cause and effect, then all of a sudden we have a feedback mechanism. So it doesn't matter if we start with a really silly aspiration and kind of really gross efforting, blind efforting, based on our cultural conditioning, we make effort. If as long as we um, are cultivating a sensitivity to cause and effect, and this in in the Buddhist teaching, this is the beginning of human wisdom, is some appreciation for the value of cause and effect, understanding the conditional nature of things. Because without even a beginning understanding of cause and effect, there's no way to be skillful. Because skill arises from having observed, tracked our experience, and see how things work, basically. And this is not just true with the outer world, like you know, having built 20 homes and 19 of them fall apart, but one holds together. And then we reflect, well, what did we do with this house that we didn't do with the others? 
Or what did we do with those 19 that we didn't do with this one? And then we go, oh yeah, you got to do this. If the place is going to hold up against the elements. And it's the same with the inner world. You know, we, we look at how we relate, how we are and experience. And we end up suffering. And we look at how we relate and experience and we end up suffering. And we begin to connect the dots. Oh, when there's a lot of this self-centered fear, I interact, I relate in a way that makes things tight. Or when there's a lot of this self-centered neediness, and I'm relating from that place, things tend to get tight, tend to get worse. So we just start connecting the dots. And the thing is, we don't need any governing theories. We don't need somebody to tell us the truth. You know, the truth that the Buddha told was really about a method, like how to realize, how to realize your own independence in this thing we call life through the cultivation of mindfulness. So we're understanding cause and effect in particular in terms of suffering or in terms of stress. So, you know, as we engage this process, our aspiration matures. Initially, our aspiration floats around between the three kinds of craving. We aspire for certain nice sense experiences. We aspire to become people, you know, the person I've always wanted to be. And we aspire for things to end, things we don't like. So these are the three cravings. And we mature from that to an aspiration for the heart's full release. This is beautifully articulated in one of my um, most favorite suttas, the Discourse uh, on the Heartwood or the Heartwood Sutta. I guess most of you probably have heard it, but I'll just review it quickly. And it's kind of an interesting story. Um, and it, evidently, this teaching was given shortly after uh, Devadatta had left the Sangha to sort of try to form another community of monks and nuns to compete with the Buddha. Devadatta was the Buddha's so-called evil cousin, who at different times tried to kill him and um, just was a pain in the butt. (laughs) (laughs) Just to show you that, just because you're, you know, a fully enlightened being uh, dedicated to helping other living beings, that things don't always go well. So, uh, referring to his cousin, the Buddha says to the practitioners around him, Practitioners, here are some Dharma friends go forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness. So home life into homelessness is sort of code for a life that's dedicated to these three kinds of cravings, and that's like the totally appropriate, just trying to get a nice house, nice relationships, that's the home life. And to homelessness means a life understanding the limitations of sense experience and of becoming and seeking, putting your eggs in a different basket than your 401k and your health and your relationships. It's not saying those things are bad. It's just understanding that they're limited. Then a person begins a homeless life or as lay people, people we'd say a spiritual life, you know, we could just be lay people interested in getting our bank accounts bigger and our homes bigger and our cars bigger and more friends. Or we can have a sense of that being limited and be interested in what we'd call a spiritual life, something that's not about these conditioned things. So he's giving an example. You know, suppose one of your Dharma friends goes forth out of faith from a life devoted to sense experience to a spiritual life, considering I'm a victim of birth, aging, and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. I'm a victim of suffering, a prey to suffering. Surely an ending of this whole mass of suffering can be known. So this is a real insight. 
like where it's like the first noble truth where in all of this probably this has been true in moments of our life where we recognize oh my god there's a lot of dukkha a lot of stress involved in being this person having this mind and body having this life is there is there another way i mean is there another way to be this person to be have this life without this whole mass of suffering so we go on a search that's sort of the beginning we look around, we ask around. She has gone forth thus, right? So she leaves beyond sort of the world devoted to sense experience, sense gain, attainment, and she acquires gain, honor, and renown. She is pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and her intention is fulfilled. On account of it, she lauds herself and disparages others thus. I have gain, honor, and renown. But these other practitioners are unknown, of no account. She becomes intoxicated with that gain, honor, and renown, grows negligent, falls into negligence, and being negligent, she lives in suffering. So, this is true for us. Your friends may be impressed that you're on a a meditation retreat. You're different now, because they're concerned with 401ks and this and that, partying maybe, but you seem to be have a sense of the limitations of that. And that, that, you know, both people are a little afraid of people have a so-called spiritual life and impressed with them. Maybe I'm missing something. And we can get intoxicated with that being different, being better than. It's pretty easy from this lofty place of being somebody who goes on a meditation retreat to look down on the craziness of the world, which is basically us when we're not on retreat. <laughs> you know, the hours we spend reading news and the talking about things that we don't really need to talk about and, uh, you know, just my neurotic revisiting of the refrigerator and over just looking for some kind of sense distraction knowing full well if I had any sort of moment of reflection that it's not leading to anything of any lasting value, yet I just fall into those habits. And now, because we're in a more refined state, we look back, in fact, we look down on the sort of grumbling, fumbling people there, sort of (laughs) acting out their neurotic habits. And so we can't get intoxicated, we know that feeling, And then we can, just based on being slightly different, you know, having enough of an insight to to go on a meditation retreat, we can be content with that, as if that's something uh, lasting or something that is protecting in any way. And the sutta, the discourse, just continues. Different things people mistake the path for. So the Buddha likens... Uh, being satisfied with gain, honor, renown as going in search of heartwood, you know, the middle of the tree, the, the real solid wood, but going away with twigs and branches, thinking you have the heartwood. And it says, uh, suppose a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, came to a great tree standing possessed of heartwood, passing over its heartwood, its sapwood, its inner bark, its outer bark, he would cut off the twigs and leaves and take them away, thinking they were heartwood. This bhikkhu, this practitioner, is called one who has taken the twigs and leaves of the holy life and stopped short with that. And then he goes on, he says, well, what happens if somebody goes in search of heartwood gains this honor and renown because of this renunciation leaving behind the worldly life that isn't intoxicated, isn't satisfied just having that renown, that fame of being the person who sits every day or goes on meditation retreats or read Buddhist books or has Buddhist friends, maybe even a mala or a nice meditation shawl, <laughs> or an altar in your home, or, you know, the accoutrements of our practice, our attachment maybe. 
No offense. <laughs> so if we're not satisfied with that, then we continue on. You know, we're not just going through the motions of being uh, on a spiritual path. We dig in a little bit more. You know, digging in a little bit more means we look at our life and we begin to notice how so many of our actions aren't in alignment with a spiritual path. Like we cheat or we steal or we're mean to people or we use harsh language or we this or that. And we start to clean up our act and we gain virtue. And so that's the next thing. Virtue is like, uh, you know, it is on the path, but it isn't the whole path. And we can get intoxicated. Now it's not so much we're intoxicated by people respecting us for living a spiritual life, but we're intoxicated with the arrogance of, uh, like, of not harming. So it's one thing not to harm, and it's another thing to be identified with somebody who has good virtue, that doesn't steal, and doesn't harm, and speaks wisely. We can, you know, just like people can be intoxicated with their beauty, people can just as easily, maybe even more easily, be intoxicated with their sila, their morality. It's even a, a more stinky kind of attachment or arrogance to be around people who think they're better than the rest because, you know, they don't do this. Whether, you know, it could be around vegetarianism or it could be around, uh, you know, you, you recycle not just normal plastic, but even the plastic that the city doesn't pick up. You know, all these little things. We can build a very entrenched sense of self around all these sort of sila, these morality, ethical issues. I was uh, so beautiful looking at the lake and then a jet ski came by and I, it wasn't bothering me. I wasn't sort of aversive to it. But it just, you know, the thought arose like, uh, and, and I, I kind of saw it, it's like, you know, a sailboat is such a, a more green way to enjoy <laughs> this lake than a jet ski, you know. And just that sort of, uh, I just noticed like that it's a way of the mind dividing things up. And so if we don't get intoxicated with the, the beauty of virtue, virtue is a beautiful thing, so it's easy to get intoxicated with it. But we develop virtue for its own sake because it's the right thing to do. It feels good, but we don't get deluded by it or entranced by it, and we continue on the path. So we don't get stuck with, this would be the outer bark. And we go on to the inner bark. And the inner bark is the development of concentration. So now that we've developed virtue, we're not making as many mistakes in our life, our life begins to settle down. And we just more easily access concentrated and refined states of mind, beautiful states of mind, of metta, of stillness, of peace, of inner bliss. And of course, more than sila, this can be even more intoxicating. I know many people who have accessed these uh, more refined states in meditation practice, and then when situation change changes and they can't access them, it's like a huge loss. Like their sense of who they are is gone because they became the person who resides in beautiful states of mind. But these states are conditional. They arise due to certain conditions. And when they're not there, we don't access those states. And whatever sense of self was built upon being the one who could rest in bliss or or access uh, peace, that person has to die. And that's really painful if that's where the identity is. So it's not that it's incorrect. It's very healthy and healing and appropriate to access deep states of concentration if that's available in our practice and to learn to abide there and to notice when we start to build a self around the experience because we'll get stuck there. And that's like coming home with the inner bark. It's something, but it's not the heartwood. It's not what we really want. And then the next is, uh, you know, if we're not intoxicated by the concentration states, 
Then the next is insight. We start actually discerning, seeing things we haven't seen before about the nature of the mind or the nature of experience, the nature of things as they are in profound ways, ways that the intellectual understanding doesn't really match, but like seeing impermanence, seeing the conditional nature of things, the selfless nature of things, seeing that any kind of identification is dukkha. And there's a lot of power in seeing the underlying reality, a lot of liberation, a lot of freedom. And the mind can get intoxicated by that freedom and build a self out of, I understand. I am so happy that I understand. Maybe someday you guys will understand too. (laughs) You know, and the stink, the stink of emptiness. You know, when uh, a person becomes identified with being empty or becomes identified with being free, I'm the one who's free. I'm the one who's not attached, you idiots. <laughs> and so it is that it's not like it means that they have the person hasn't had real insight. It just means that the insight is misunderstood because it gets picked up, it gets understood from the point of view of self. I understand. And it, basically what happens is there's the mind is seen clearly, insightfully. And then the power, the energy of that insight is the cause for the practice to stop. So now they're kind of back in a normal consciousness and all of a sudden that energy is something to get identified with. Could could you just go back a couple of sentences there and start over? (laughs) Yeah, so so if we don't get intoxicated with uh, concentration states, you know, so we're ex- that doesn't mean we're not experiencing them, but we're not intoxicated, we're not getting stuck through identification, Then, w- which means we're, the mind is continually investigating the nature of things, including the states, and it begins, because deep states of concentration also lead to deep states of sensitivity, we have a lot more sensitivity to dukkha, and it's arising and it's ceasing, and we start to see how everything's changing, and any kind of identification of suffering. So the normal insights, the easiest way to remember how insight arises is in terms of impermanence, in terms of uh, dukkha, any identification is suffering, and in terms of anatta, the not-self, everything's impersonal. So we start having, the mind starts having insight into the underlying nature. And that is quite liberating. And a lot of energy arises with insight the mind feels uh, powerfully enlivened, like we've been carrying a, a 60-pound back, uh, backpack, and all of a sudden, it just falls off. Have you ever done that? Uh, if you backpack, and you know, even after a long day, 50 miles through the mountains with your whatever, 40, 50, 60-pound pack, you take it off, even though you've been hiking for hours, you feel like you can jump five feet in the air when you take that pack off. It's just like, ah. And it's like that. When the mind sees impermanence, understands dukkha, understands the impersonal nature, to whatever degree it understands, has insight, to that degree a lightness arises, a powerful, pervasive freedom, a taste of freedom. It's a specific taste of freedom because it's unexpected. That's... That's a good definition of insight, when the mind understands or sees something that's unexpected. See, if it was expected, it wouldn't be an insight. Either you already had the insight, but when you have an insight, you're seeing something you didn't expect to see about the nature of experience or the mind. And it's liberating. The mind is liberated from a burden it didn't realize it was holding. And that feeling of liberation with whatever... Uh, disposition or habit of taking things personally is left in the mind at that moment, in that moment, then that, that tendency of the mind will, of course, use that energy of liberation to build a sense of self around. Wow. No. Uh-huh. 
Can you repeat that again? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, it's like what the sense of self is built around two things, wrong view yeah. and intensity, yeah. or, you know, kind of a, a strength of experience. Mm-hmm. So the stronger the experience... The slippery or the slope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's two things that can increase the dukkha of identification. One is just having a, a very strong tendency to take everything personally. Then you don't even need an intense experience. Yeah. Or you can have a very weak disposition to take things personally, but if it's a very strong experience that's really intoxicating, then even if it's weak, you're going to get hooked because of the intensity of the experience. And the intensity can come about for two reasons. One, the mind is very, very sensitive, so even a normal experience is really intense. Or it's really an intense experience, like an insight. So generally, when you have an insight, the mind is both really sensitive and it's a big deal. And so it's very intoxicating. And I don't know anybody, certainly in my case, who's had any kind of insight who didn't get identified with it to some degree. Yeah, I kind of get that whole Jesus complex thing where you go, you know, the light bulb goes on and everything's incredibly still and then yeah, you get really excited about yeah. going back into your life and, you know, <laughs> caring for everything and, yeah, it's crazy. And a lot of spiritual organizations and even religious traditions are basically the, uh, uh, the energy of somebody having an insight and then the identification and the certainty that comes with that identification and then not knowing what to do with the energy so I'll tell you guys about what happened to me and what the truth is. Crazy together. Yeah, yeah. Because certainty is really intoxicating. And that's one of the telltale things of the insight is there's certainty because the mind has seen something directly. But the identification then all of a sudden we've abstracted the insight and made it into a concept, like everything's empty in Buddhist terms. And then, but we can then put that on an altar and uh, act out in all kinds of neurotic ways around it. So once again, you know, we sort of miss the heartwood and we suffer. And then, you know, if at some point we realize that and we continue on with the practice of just opening, investigating our experience. We go beyond the insight, the identification with the insight, into the heart's full release. And I'll just read that last passage. Here, practitioner, here, practitioners, a clansman, a Dharma friend, goes forth out of faith from the home life into homelessness, considering, I'm a victim of birth, aging, and death, of sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. I'm a victim of suffering, a prey to suffering. Surely an ending of this whole mass of suffering can be known. When she has gone forth thus, she acquires gain, honor, and renown. She is not pleased with that gain, honor, and renown, and her intention is not fulfilled. When she is diligent, she achieves the attainment of virtue. She is pleased with that attainment of virtue, but her intention is not fulfilled. When she is diligent, she achieves the attainment of concentration. She is pleased with the attainment of concentration. So each stage the person recognizes the goodness of what's been seen or what's been achieved but her intention is not fulfilled. When she, be, when she is diligent, she achieves knowledge and vision. She is pleased with that knowledge and vision, but her intention is not fulfilled. She does not, on account of it, laud herself and disparage others. She does not become intoxicated with that knowledge and vision. She does not grow negligent and fall into negligence. Being diligent, she attains perpetual liberation. And it is impossible for that practitioner to fall away from that perpetual deliverance. 
And then at the very end, so this holy life practitioners does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or the knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, of heart, that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. That's what the Blessed One said. The practitioners were satisfied and delighted and the Blessed One's words. Isn't that a nice discourse? <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> Luckily, you can find it online. Just remember, Hartwood. <laughs> I mean, the idea is pretty simple. It, it may be relatively complex, but the idea is simple, which is we're interested in the heart that doesn't pick up dukkha anymore. And so as long as our heart, our mind, is picking up stress, picking up weight, then we keep on investigating. And that anything we can claim, anything the self can uh, claim, and I'm going to talk more about this tonight and tomorrow night. You know, we've been... We started out talking about this engine of aspiration and right effort, going beyond blind effort, going beyond a limited aspiration, like this discourse talks about. And then we need to reflect more and more deeply on the experience of dukkha, and then, relevant to this point, what is the experience of non-dukkha? What is this perpetual liberation that the Buddha is talking about, or the unshakable release of the heart? And we may think of it, it's easy for us to feel quite limited in understanding it, because in a lot of circles, Buddhist circles also, uh, the, the goal of the religious spiritual life is sort of put way out there. And I don't find that helpful for me, and I don't think it's generally right to make it something far away. Because the fact is, we're all very aware of the experience of dukkha. So the experience of non-dukkha is actually much more obvious than we think. It's just not this. Do you see? So if we get really clear about how we're gummed up, how we feel tight, how fear operates in the mind, how doubt, shame operates in the mind, then because of this possibility, you know, this imagination, we can open to the possibility of not this. And actually it's useful. That's why the Buddha talks about dukkha first in terms of directing attention in that, in that way. So, aspiration matures from something relatively simple, like I just want a warm bed, a roof over me, and that seems really satisfying, but it doesn't really take care of us for long. And then the, the thing about right effort we talked about the last couple nights is how it needs to be why wisdom needs to be brought into efforting so that there's some feedback, so we're watching cause and effect. And then when we have somewhat mature sense of aspiration, like, I really want to realize the heart that isn't burdened by any conditions. I don't want to have to be picking and choosing conditions until the end of time in order to be happy. I want the relief of allowing life to just be what it is, to be able to show up, to be able to respond, no matter the conditions. Like there could be an apocalypse and we'd be completely able to show up, to participate and to do the best we can. It doesn't have to be our incredibly beautiful existence, at least we have tonight. I mean, think about how idyllic the conditions we have, the delicious food, the wonderful safe company, you know, this beautiful tranquil setting, the relative health that we have. 
But we want a heart that's going to be okay no matter the conditions. So we have a sense of that aspiration, that unshakable release, the heart that's independent, the ease that's independent of conditions. And we understand that the effort we're going to make is going to be tuned into that aspiration. So we're going to be making effort to see whether it leads in the direction of that perpetual release of the heart, that independent release of the heart, or whether it's leading to dependency and fear and neediness. So we're just observing the heart and the kind of effort we make and where it leads. And then as I mentioned last night, it really reveals the primacy of view. Like that, this input, this present moment input, how the mind is relating, this is what observing cause and effect reveals. It really matters how the mind is understanding the life that's being lived or the experience that's being experienced. Much more than anything, much more than whether we're in this idyllic situation or in a really difficult situation, whether we're young or old, the most important contribution to suffering or non-suffering, dukkha or non-dukkha, is the view in the mind. So view by view I mean the, the deepest, most subtle, most pervasive conditioning or uh, um, the dispositions of our, of our perceiving, like how the perceiving mechanism, the knowing mechanism of the mind, is being colored. That's what I mean by view. Yeah, so the view, the thing that has the most impact that we really want to start tracking is the perceptual mechanism, like how we perceive experience and how that way that we perceive, how it's colored by different dispositions. You know, and in particular, it's the, you know, way that like right now, uh, because of our dispositions, our habit is to perceive things in terms of being a separate person experiencing the subjective world, right? So just tune into that right now, that right now, or even if maybe you're in a more liberated state, then put yourself back in that more ordinary state where, <laughs> where we feel like, okay, I'm here having a life, you know, that I'm observing or I'm aware of the life that's being lived, and it's like this. So it's a dualistic perception. Not because it's actually dualistic, perhaps, but because of the underlying dispositions that are affecting perception that I always, on and on, interpret my lived experience in terms of a me having an experience. And this has all kinds of implications for suffering when this happens. And we could spend, and according to the Buddha, we have spent incalculable eons trying to alleviate suffering, but based on the misperception that there's a person having a life and who is suffering. And so from that point of view, it makes so much sense to address the objects in my life, to rearrange the objects in my life to try to alleviate the suffering when the suffering is arising because of the perceptual distortion, where I'm seeing things dualistically or a sense of separation. So just as an experiment, uh, let's all shift back to the enlightened view, where we're having this experience, and, and please actually just do your best, but we're having this experience, and now because we have this additional information, we can... Just notice if in experiencing this, you know, the moments, moment by moment, if in experiencing the mind can be free of that perceptual distortion. Like, is it possible to notice how experiencing the experience 
all there is is this. There's not really two things, me having an experience. You see, right now, it's just this. That's our actual experience, it's just this. So that you see how, that how ephemeral or how quickly the sense of separation can get challenged by just, it's not like, sometimes we think the ignorance is like a huge mountain out of granite and that to undertake the spiritual path means that, you know, we need the hammer and chisel and we're going to break apart the granite, the 14,000 foot granite facade in some day the whole ego system will be just rubble and will be free. But the thing is, the separation never existed. It's a, a mirage, a convincing mirage from the point of view of separation. It's a convincing mirage. And this hard, challenging idea. But if you just notice in the most simple way, don't, don't do, there's no kind of mental calisthenics involved. Just to notice that right now, listening to my voice and hearing the crickets, feeling the body sitting, it's not two things. And even when there's a sense of a somebody wondering if I'm doing it right, then you, we just, that can just, that's just part of this. You know, it's not outside of this. The observer isn't outside of the observed. There's nothing outside of this mind moment. Never has been. But we live that way because of perceptual habits. So, this is what we mean by view. We're really interested in how or what the mind is taking this moment to be and recognizing how fluid that is and that we can really uh, play with that a bit. And then this really helps us understand the value in samadhi. Remember, I've been talking about samadhi in terms of abiding in wholesome states, like love, abiding in the present moment, abiding in the power of righteous restraint, you know, the, the sort of the clarity arising out of our lived experience that, honey, don't go there. So these are three abidings, and it's a way for the mind to move in the direction of being undivided. When we're in unwholesome states, like greediness or fear, fear divides up the mind, kind of fragments the mind. There's me who's afraid of that. It, it sort of reinforces the dualistic, the perceptual distortion. But love undermines the perceptual distortion, real love, universal love, not kind of romantic love. Romantic love generally <laughs> reinforces the perceptual distortion. <laughs> I hope she loves me, or I hope he loves me. You know, you can have a very, generally we have a very strong sense of self, separation, when we're in the throes of romantic love. But a more universal love, friendliness, kindness, compassion, it breaks down boundaries. It's a more universal feeling. So it cools the fires of uh, duality, of that perceptual distortion. Just like abiding in the present moment, when we devote attention to ordinary experiences like our classic breathing in, knowing the breath coming in, breathing out, knowing the sensations of the out-breath, breath after breath, and really learn to connect and sustain attention with the breathing process, well, we undermine the perceptual distortion because 
as as we learn to wholeheartedly connect and sustain attention, in a sense, there's no space in the mind to keep recreating the perceptual distortion. We may initially feel like I'm watching the breath in and out, but as long as we keep encouraging the mind to connect even more deeply, to be even more intimate with the next in-breath or the next moment of hearing or the next moment of feeling the body walking, so that we're encouraging a more complete and full and inclusive connection with the present moment, then the mind abandons all its other activity. See, the perceptual distortion depends on the ongoing distortion. As soon as the mind gets so busy knowing, it has no room left to recreate the perceptual distortion, then the perceptual distortion falls away, and we call unity arises, a sense of wholeness arises, and the happiness of that wholeness, or the bliss of that wholeness. And this is called the peace, or the bliss, of samadhi, of a unified or an undivided mind, a mind that isn't being fragmented by the hindrances. That's the definition of samadhi, is it's a mind state that isn't being broken apart by the isolating, uh, self-centered habits of fear and greed and disconnection. And so we can achieve this through wholesome states of mind, abiding in wholesome states of mind that have universal qualities, like love has this, if we keep opening to love, it brings the mind beyond this and that, and it's just love. It's not me loving, because as we tune into the experience of love, it's beautiful. And so the heart's drawn more and more into the experiencing of love, or into the loving itself, and it's willing to drop the sense of I'm loving, because it's in the way of a deeper experience of loving. So that's why these wholesome states of mind bring the mind to unity, because they have the capacity to expand, and the mind is willing to abandon any foothold, because it's such a beautiful thing to expand into, whether it's gratitude, or forgiveness, or compassion, or love. Same thing with... uh, with uh, abiding in the present moment, in the ordinariness of this or that, whatever we're, the mind is attending to. And we can also find unity in the, uh, in the sort of certainty of restraint, where the kind of the welling up of certainty, I'm not going to go there, I'm not going to do that. And it's you know how even in, in noxious ways, how powerful self-righteousness is? But the self-righteousness of uh, arising out of clarity, like, you know, if you, uh, if you know a particular pattern of the mind is destructive, and you've seen it so many times that this time there's no doubt in your mind, you're not fooled, by all the tricks of the mind that would pull you into thinking in that particular way. And it's like the mind can stand its ground. And there's so much powerful energy that the mind can become absorbed in the certainty. Like the classic uh, example is the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. I'm I'm sure most of you know the story of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. (laughs) But there's some point that night In fact, before he began his sit that night, remember he had been practicing intense austerities and he had a powerful insight that asceticism wasn't an end in itself. So he took some nice healing food from a a local person and refreshed his body, gained back some strength, and then he really had a sense that this was the night. And he made the resolve, you know, tonight... I'll see what needs to be seen. I'll understand what needs to be understand. And I'm not really going to budge until the work is done. And then he sat down under this big tree and began his practice. And at some point, all of 
the forces of doubt and desire and fear arose in him. And, of course, fortunate for us, the Buddha was ready to be resolute. You know, he's like the classic example that nothing would move him. And, you know, the, the story is told, you know, the armies of Mara arose, you know, the lust, the most intoxicating items, people arose in front of the Buddha and he wasn't moved and the most fierce armies of demons approached the Buddha and their spears and arrows turned into uh, little petals of beautiful flowers raining down on the Buddha. And finally, the last trick up Mara's sleeve, Mara's just our own doubt, our own sort of self-centered tendencies. Mara pulled out the sort of, you know, the weapon that usually gets it and gets the person in the end, which is doubt or shame. What right do you have? This is what Mara says to the Buddha. The Buddha's mind says to the Buddha, you know, or the Buddha to be. He's not a Buddha yet. Right, what right do you have to sit here, resolute, so cool, so sure of yourself? You know, so perfect. Because it would be easy to doubt that this mind, this heart, can really open to everything. Maybe this isn't the night. Maybe I haven't done everything that needs to be done. Maybe it can't be done. Maybe the best tact is just to find a peaceful place to spend the rest of the days of my life. But the Buddha, what he did is he tuned in he, the, the images, he, and you see this in, in Buddha images where the Buddha's, I forget now if it's right or left hand, touching the earth, maybe with the left hand. Is it the right hand? Yeah, touching the earth. And uh, basically asking the earth, Mother Earth, to be the witness for all the insight. So the certainty, the resoluteness, it isn't pretend, it's coming out of having lived and experienced over and over again what works and what doesn't work. And so the Buddha asks Mother Earth to witness, to sort of support his resoluteness, that everything that's needed to be seen has been seen. I have the right to be fearless. I have the right not to budge. I have the right to see things as they actually are. And so that's also a unity of mind. And this un- we, one way or another, we need to move in the direction of unity because of the profound sensitivity we get when the mind becomes undivided. So we can think of a worldly life as being a life with the mind divided. The mind is split up into likes and dislikes and hopes and fears, doubts, certainty. It just gets pushed around a lot, fragmented a lot. The energy of the mind is dissipated. But when the mind gets unified, I know it sounds a little far-fetched, but the mind then takes, has the power of the universe or the power of all things. Because there really aren't boundaries like we assume there are. That's part of the dualistic notion. So when our mind gets unified in these three ways, through abiding in wholesome universal thoughts of loving-kindness, for example, abiding in the present moment, abiding in resoluteness, it drops this perceptual distortion. The mind becomes unified. It taps into this, the power of the universe which makes everything possible, including seeing what needs to be seen. The mind becomes very sensitive. In the story, the legend of the Buddhist night under the Bodhi tree, you know, it's talked about in terms of seeing the endlessness of lifetimes, birth and death, birth and death, not just his own previous lifetimes, but countless beings previous lifetimes, and basically seeing samsara, the cycles of suffering, how 
because of this perceptual distortion, the mind creates an idea that it wants to become. I want to become this, and then becomes that, and then wants to become something else, and then becomes that. On and on and on. We create hell realms for ourselves. We create deva realms, beautiful realms for ourselves, over and over and over. And just because of that universal sensitivity, universal stability, because his mind was unified, unshakable, he saw this. He, he saw something that's always true, the endlessness of the pain arising out of the perceptual distortion, like the four great oceans can't match the number of tears that have been shed. I read that last night, right? Yeah, the tears that have been shed in our ceaseless wandering on. But whether you take this to be a metaphor or an absolute fact that we've wandered on, it doesn't really matter. But just to open to that possibility, surely this is enough for the cause, for the arising of dispassion, disenchantment with clinging. We're not disenchanted, often it's said like disenchanted with the world, but it's disenchanted with clinging to the world, getting attached to experience. It's not that experience in and of itself is good or bad, it's just what it is. It's Dhamma, the way that it is. So I'll just end with a quote from Ajahn Chah, this great Thai master. This is one that's heard a lot. Do everything with a mind that lets go. Do not expect any praise or reward. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will know complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will have come to an end. Rodney Smith has a, a new book out that somebody gave me, and I don't, I'm not sure who, but it's really a wonderful book. It's called Stepping Out of Self-Deception, The Buddha's Liberating Teaching on of No Self. Uh, if you don't know, Rodney Smith is a longtime teacher at IMS, and also um, the teacher in Seattle, Seattle Insight Meditation Community. And uh, in that book, he talks about a, an instruction that's been really useful for him, just a little pithy reminder. Add nothing to this moment. And he says in that book, once we abandon the belief that there is a more spiritually useful moment than the one we are in, we have embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening. Once we have abandoned the belief that there is a more spiritually useful moment than the one we are in, we have embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening. So let's just sit for a few moments together. Not be afraid of forgetting, letting go of the words. listening everyone thank you for listening to learn how you can support the teachers and dharma seed please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate